Would you pray with me? Almighty God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Being first. Many of us have some kind of a competitive spirit, at least to some degree. We compete in games, and sports, and work, whether we're among friends, neighbors, family members, or even strangers. Our society and economy are largely based on competition, and we even encourage our children to prepare for their roles in society by being competitive in nearly everything they do. There's an underlying attitude that success in life is tied to success in competition. This attitude is not new. We see it in the earliest writings of the Bible. <clears throat> Excuse me. In chapter 4 of Genesis, there's the story of Cain and Abel, two brothers who were competing for God's favor. Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground, while Abel sacrificed a lamb. God showed a preference for Abel's offering, but disregarded Cain's offering, which made Cain very angry. God warned Cain, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is lurking at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must master it. God acknowledged that that driving human need for acceptance by others that leads to happiness when fulfilled or tendencies toward destruction when not met. We are warned in this passage that we must recognize and control these destructive feelings when we don't feel like we are being accepted as much as we think we should be. In the New Testament passage, which we read this morning, we see the 12 chosen disciples dealing with this competitive spirit. In the first part of our reading, Jesus explains to his disciples that he would be betrayed, executed, and then resurrected three days later. This was a very direct, literal statement, but they seemed unsure how to respond. They just stood there quietly wondering what he meant, but they were afraid to ask. This was actually the second time in Mark's gospel that Jesus had warned them about this impending suffering and resurrection. Earlier in chapter 8, in verses 31 through 33, right after Peter had declared his belief that Jesus was the Messiah, Jesus told all of them that he was about to endure great suffering, be killed, and they would be resurrected on the third day. Now at that time, Peter took Jesus aside to sharply criticizing him for making such dark, ominous statements. Maybe he was emboldened by his recent success in identifying Jesus as the Messiah. But in any case, Jesus, after looking around at all the other disciples as though he was making sure that everyone had his attention, rebuked Peter and called Peter Satan and criticized Peter for being concerned more about his own personal needs than God's purpose for their lives. So it's no wonder that this second time that the topic came up, Everyone was quiet, afraid to ask what he really meant. Was this another parable? Or did Jesus really know what was about to happen and how he was going to die and be resurrected? Apparently the group saw how Peter, who was looking like a favorite disciple a few days earlier, 
seemed to fall a few notches in rank after making a bad decision in his recommendations to Jesus about how the Messiah was supposed to behave. It seems rank within the disciple community was an issue. The part about on this, the second part of this morning's passage tells us the disciples were arguing with each other about who was the greatest while they were making their way to Capernaum. We might imagine how that conversation went. Peter was clearly in the lead for a while, but dropped a few slots when he tried to tell Jesus how to be the Messiah. Then soon afterward, Jesus picked Peter, James, and John to privately go with him up the mountain where they witnessed his transfiguration. They were terrified, and Peter mismoked. ranked at that time. And then they came down from the mountain, and they encountered a boy who had a spirit that made him act as though he had epilepsy. And none of the disciples could cure him. Jesus was the only one who could cure this boy. This may have created some confusion in the rankings, since none of them were apparently quite ready to fill Jesus' shoes. When they got to Capernaum, Jesus rhetorically asked them what they were talking about on the road. He already knew, and he can tell by their silence that they were ready for a new teaching. In an appeal to their competitive nature, Jesus explained what it takes to become number one. Whoever wants to be first must be last of all and servant of all. Clearly, there needs to be a clarification of what it means to be first and last. The disciples were arguing about which of Jesus' followers <coughs> excuse me, was greatest. So being number one in this context means being the most Christ-like or being the one with the best understanding of what Jesus was trying to teach them. So there are some nuances in the original Greek text for this passage that I think might be useful in thinking about the guidance that Jesus gave to be last of all and servant of all. The statement, be last of all and servant of all, written in Greek as estai ponton eskatos kai ponton theatonos, was a specific, had a specific grammar structure that implies you are doing this to yourself so you will become this way in the future. So perhaps another way of phrasing the full statement is to say that those who have the best understanding of Christ's teachings will be recognized by how they make themselves become last of all and servants of all. The reason I bring up these details is to highlight a few implications. First, as we grow closer to Christ, we're more likely to recognize the image of God in others and be moved to help them, to enable them to be successful in their own endeavors, especially those who are on the fringes of society or appear to have a lower social or economic status. Note that this is a personal decision that we make based on our own personal desires. It's not a consequence of guilt or coercion. It's also not the same thing as suffering some economic or social hardship where we fall victim to a crisis. And it's not the same as purposefully degrading or sabotaging ourselves so that we become the dregs of society. 
I think this statement is more about identifying the faithful followers of Christ through their generosity rather than their poverty. Granted, the difficult trials that we experience in life, such as poverty, can help us to get closer to Christ as we learn to trust in God. But I don't think poverty is a prerequisite for being a good Christian. The point is not to become poor, but to recognize the needs of those around us and pull them out of their poverty, despondency, or any other personal tragedy that they are experiencing. The desired outcome is that we all have sufficient means to live into our calling. A second point is similar, but it's more specifically related to the idea of being a servant of all. I think Jesus to be willing to serve anyone and everyone we encounter who has a need so that we can help them with that need. <coughs> Despite differences in race, nationality, gender, sexuality, age, or any other way that we tend to segregate ourselves. Christ calls us to give whatever we can to whoever we can help. We're called to look beyond our physical characteristics and our social identities so that we can offer ourselves in service wherever there's a need. Jesus illustrated this teaching by using a child as an example. He took a child into his arms and said, Whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes not me, but the one who sent me. It's important to consider the status of children in the first century culture to understand the real impact of this statement. Children were treated much differently at that time than they are today. Rather than being cherished and celebrated for their innocence, the first century society treated children as though they were basically worthless. Historical records show that they may not have been even given names for the first few years since many of them died before reaching adolescence. And childless Romans who needed heirs often adopted, adopted adults rather than children. It's also important to note that the child who was present with Jesus and his disciples in this teaching was quite possibly a household slave. So one way of looking at it is that the coveted role which the disciples who had, that they'd been arguing about on the road to Capernaum, who would be the greatest representative or who would be the one to represent Jesus if he wasn't around, was filled not by a particular superior individual, but generally by the kind of person whom society considered was least significant. Even more challenging was the idea that since Jesus represented God and the child represented Jesus, the child was seen as representing God. The Almighty God who gives and sustains life is best represented by those whom society regards as the least significant. This was a very radical statement because it completely redefined success. Rather than being that condition where a person is admired by everyone, being first in Christ's circle is more about being the one who lifts everyone else up and serves the needs of all in creation. 
The search for acceptance and admiration of other people is not necessarily the path that leads to greater acceptance by God. The path to greater fulfillment, the path to experiencing abundance of love and joy comes through choosing to elevate and serve others. By the same token, not being recognized as number one in society may not be such a bad thing. This should be good news for all of us since nobody is ever number one in society for very long. Even those of us who reach the pinnacle of success in our areas of interest eventually lose our edge. There's always someone new coming along who's going to be a little faster, a little stronger, a little smarter, a little more charismatic. It's good to realize that always winning isn't the objective that Christ recommends. And losing doesn't mean that we are loved less by God. As we learn and grow from our challenges and mistakes, we grow closer to God and become more aware of God's love for us. And I wouldn't say that God loves us more when we lose, because I don't think God can love us any more than God already does. What changes is our relationship with God. As our relationship with God gets stronger through the experiences that we have, we get a deeper understanding of how much God loves us, regardless of how society sees us. This was quite possibly the case of the author of the Gospel of Mark. This Gospel is considered to have been written earlier than any of the other Gospels. It was probably written around 70 to 75 CE or AD. This was a terrible period for the early Christians because they had experienced many, many tragic losses at that time. James, the brother of Jesus, who had also become a significant leader in the Christian community in Jerusalem, was executed a few years earlier in the early 60s. The community also lost the leadership of Peter and Paul, who had been executed in Rome. It's about the same time. The church was losing the generation of apostles who had walked and, with, and spoke directly with Jesus. There was a heightened expectation that Jesus was coming soon and the end times predicted by the prophets was going to arrive any day. But the entire Jewish nation was in turmoil and a revolt was staged against the Romans which resulted in the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. This was a devastating blow, not only to the Jews, but to the Christians as well. Christianity grew out of the Jewish community, and there was an understanding that the Jewish laws and writings from the prophets were to be fulfilled. Some believe that the Gospel of Mark was written to reinforce the beliefs of the Christian community in this difficult time and address the criticisms and misconceptions that were growing. They had experienced many losses and were being demeaned by the Romans who had crushed their revolt. But they persevered through all these challenges and recorded the story of Jesus and his teachings so that we might have the opportunity today to learn about the good news. The author of Mark's Gospel, who probably faced extreme personal difficulty, must have had first-hand knowledge of what it's like to experience the abiding presence of Christ despite being on the fringes of society. Fortunately for us, this person also elevated humanity 
through their service in recording the life and teachings of Christ for generations of people to come, to reflect on over the centuries. We all need to feel like we are accepted. And today's passage from the Gospel of Mark gives us some insight into how we can experience that acceptance from Christ. Our competitive spirit seems to be an innate trait, and many times we seek acceptance by winning. But Christ teaches us that winning acceptance by society through dominating others will not lead to the gratifying experience of growing closer to God. The path to building a greater relationship with God is through elevating others and offering the gifts of our talents and resources to as much of creation as possible. God's not impressed by our abilities to outperform each other. In fact, accepting those who are deemed the least significant in society brings us the closest to God's loving presence. By loving, empowering, and serving as many people as possible, especially the outcast and the forgotten, we can come closer to being first in the kingdom of God. Amen.